Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, conversations between The Economist and author Will Page, that's myself, and the independent analyst Richard Kramer, who we'll now call The King K. And this is where we're going to lay out some inconvenient truths about how the financial markets really work. Today we're picking up the pieces from a bubble that has long since burst, Theranos. Miss Holmes has got 20 years ahead of her to think about what happened. Is she guilty of faking it until she made it? Or is that kind of being innocent because it's what everyone else in tech does? Only she got caught big time. More in a moment. Richard, welcome back to Bubble Trouble, sir. Lovely to see you, Will. Nice one. Now, we're going to refer to you as a King K throughout this podcast. You've been christened again. I'm not sure I like that. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll tone it down. This time we're talking about Elizabeth Holmes. We have to do things differently on the podcast. Otherwise, there's no point doing this podcast. And I don't want to do the schadenfreuder thing of, you know, laughing at our pity. I want to really tackle this deeper debate about, is it a crime to fake it until you make it? If it is... What does that mean for tech in 2022? So let's get to the crossroads. The first thing I want to tackle, Richard, is the verdict. Firstly, how closely have you been following this case, past and present? I've followed it reasonably closely. I am no expert in med tech, but certainly it got so much attention, mostly because of Elizabeth Holmes herself and her presentation skills or looks or simply the the rarity of being a female entrepreneur, chief executive, innovator, visionary, as she would style herself in Silicon Valley. So it was kind of impossible to miss. In preparing for this podcast, I want to say I really enjoyed listening to John Carreyou, the Wall Street Journal author of Bad Blood, and his three-series podcast on the trial and the ins and outs of it. It really opened my eyes to the way in which Elizabeth Holmes is still managing her image ahead of this trial and how there's still a fascinating trial to come of her former partner and co-CEO of Theranos, Sonny. I've listened to quite a bit of the podcasts that have come out about uh, Theranos, and there were some incredible sycophantic moments, and you'll know that word from previous podcasts. (laughs) This is going to be like a greatest hits of all of our podcasts right here, right now in this one. (laughs) Well, there's certainly the sycophantic moments listening to the likes of Jim Cramer, no relation spelled differently, uh, (laughs) 
fawn over Elizabeth Holmes after some very damaging revelations had come out and sympathizing with her about how difficult it was to be an entrepreneur and a visionary and to be like Steve Jobs of her era when it turned out that a lot of what she was saying was complete smoke and mirrors. So let's get context on your recollections before we get into this incredible verdict that came out last week. You were aware of Theranos before the Wall Street Journal broke its story. Give me your recollections of what you thought about this company then. Were you buying into it or were you smelling bubble trouble, if we use the name of our own podcast? I wasn't either of those because, again, I don't have the context to judge medtech, uh, how difficult what they're speaking about might be to create this incredibly simple blood test, which is so much cheaper and more accurate and can be done with so much less hassle. I had no context, but it was impossible to miss this blonde Stanford graduate, Steve Jobs styled lookalike that had promised to revolutionize an area, certainly in the US, which is fraught with issues, which is medical testing. And I know that it's become an industry precisely because of the liabilities and the legal niceties of the U.S. uh, medical system, oblige doctors to prescribe test after test after test, (laughs) and it becomes an incredible burden to people. And equally, because of the, the fear factor, the visceral reaction people have to the needle getting stuck in their arm so that they can draw blood to find out what what's in it. And that's important context for this podcast and for listeners who want to go deeper in the subject. Thoroughly recommend watching the Alex Gibney documentary, Out for Blood in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. But even though you're not an expert in medtech, you're drawn into the story through the personality, as were many others. Now, let's go from before Christ to after Christ. The Wall Street Journal article lands. You are, for me, a professor of bubble trouble. When you read that Wall Street Journal article and you've read what's happened since, was it deja vu? Was it I've seen this story too many times? Or was it different this time? I thought it was a classic example of an entrepreneur making a potentially inflated but incredibly compelling sounding claim for their invention. And we've had this time and time again that entrepreneurs will suggests that the invention that they've come up with is going to change the world, has revolutionary potential, and because of that, ought to be valued at a billion or many more uh, dollars. And that's why there has been this incredible fixation on unicorns, on on companies that that sport a billion-dollar valuation, wholly without reference to the underlying business that justifies that billion-dollar valuation. Because there are plenty of other companies that they can meet on the way down that previously were valued at tens of billions, but now are heading to zero. And they, they probably meet in the middle at the billion level on the way down. So this cult of the entrepreneur, this veneration of the visionary who breaks the mold and disrupts an existing industry largely without thought for the people whose livings rely on the industry that's being disrupted or the consequences of disrupting those industries, I think that is well entrenched in our culture now. We all want to believe that there there is the clever teenager living next door who is going to come up with an invention that changes, hopefully for the better, the way we all live. 
You're on a roll, Richard. Last week you came up with FOFO, fear of finding out. Now you've got the veneration of the visionaries. <laughs> we could almost turn this into Volvo or something, but yeah, it's a nice term. Now, the decision's interesting for me because we could say, you know, Theranos was a bubble at burst, she got caught, she's going to jail, but it's not that straightforward because she was found guilty on four of the eight counts. I'm not a lawyer. I'm presuming that you're not a lawyer, but... What's your interpretation of only being found guilty on half of the counts that she was charged against? Well, look, there's a very high burden of proof. And having listened to the John Carreyrou podcasts about the trial, clearly there are some inflated claims that investors may choose to believe. And if they put their money where their mouth is, it's buyer beware. It's caveat emptor. At the same time, this crossed a very important Rubicon. Because we're not talking about software or some consumer gadget where you fake the demo and it looks like it's improving your life. We're talking about medical technology on which people make literally life or death decisions. So when you cross that Rubicon into measuring the clinical efficacy of medical technology, there is a lot more at stake than whether your software works or makes your computer crash or that new gadget that we bought is gonna end up in the box of all those gadgets we bought that didn't work out the way we planned. The stakes are a lot higher this time, I guess. Yes, and there are many examples. I think currently the wearables market is full of examples of products that people, our listeners probably have sitting in a shoebox or in the closet somewhere or in a drawer that we thought they were going to be something we'd wear all the time and would really help us in our lives and turned out to be something that, well, didn't really work as planned. And one last thing which bugs my basement about the judge's ruling or the way the U.S. legal system works is she spends 20 years in jail whether she gets caught on one of the eight charges or all eight of the charges. There's no proportionate nature of the sentence, which I find fascinating. But let me move into another trade-off that you've already touched on, which is promise and deception. You can promise so much, but at what point does that become deception to your investors? Well, certainly there are many examples of entrepreneurs making misleading statements, if for no other reason than to buy time for themselves and perhaps the many employees that rely on them to keep the plate spinning and their business prospects still in play. And in many cases, those entrepreneurs will go to great lengths to play out the string, to see if their invention could work, to see if they can raise that extra capital that will get the extra development staff or salespeople that will make their invention a reality. And I think Elizabeth Holmes dug herself in the ditch, and the only tool she had to hand was a shovel to keep digging deeper. And that's why she kept raising more money, even though the private communications coming out showed time and again that there was serious challenges with the technology they were purporting to offer. Now I want to make you cough up your coffee here because in the Financial Times, one of her early investors, who still keeps the faith in her promise of Theranos and what it can offer medtech, said the spirit of entrepreneurship is in jeopardy. Now when somebody says that after the Theranos story is played out in the court, what does Richard Kramer say? Nonsense. (laughs) Utter nonsense. There should be no contradiction with outlining the potential or prospects of an invention or any new technology with making statements that are demonstrably 
justifiable or backed up by some modeling or projections or market research or what have you. I'm sure Elizabeth Holmes identified a large addressable market for blood testing, but to then make a promise about the technology that had no backing in science was clearly at the heart of the wire fraud trial. Now, before we go to the break, I want to draw on that lifelong lesson from Adrian Wall, the statistician in World War II who taught us that when we study the bullet holes in airplanes that come back from battle, we're drawing a long conclusion. We should be thinking about the bullet holes which prevented those other planes from coming back, those that were downed. He taught us to think about what we might be missing when we read the headlines. So what about all those startups that faked it and actually made it? You know, did they commit a crime even though they got across the finish line and popped their IPO and got their valuation and cashed out at the casino? There's a lot of people faking it. Some of them make it. I want to hear your take on that. There are lots of other cases of bad deals gone wrong. And certainly there's a lengthy court case playing out right now between Hewlett Packard and a software company they bought in the UK called Autonomy, Mm -hmm. which they bought for close to $10 billion. And it turned out that Autonomy had massively inflated the real revenue that it was getting from customers and done a lot of barter transactions and so forth. And the reality is that the courts move extremely slowly and the money disappears very fast. So there may be lots of companies where they faked it and got bought. They made it in that sense. There will be lots of companies who faked it and made it by getting themselves bought But I want to introduce a new term here to finish off our first half. We've talked in Bubble Trouble about FOMO, fear of missing out. You don't want to be one of those VCs that misses out on the next big thing. We've talked about FOFO, fear of finding out, of realizing that something that you might have bought or done wasn't what it was cracked up to be. And I want to introduce a new one. It doesn't quite trickle off the tongue in the same way, but it's faux. Fear of exposure. And for all those companies that made acquisitions that turned out to be dogs, they are afraid of exposure. They don't want investors asking, well, what did you do with that acquisition? For all those funds that invest in dozens and dozens of startups, knowing the vast majority of them will fail They don't want the exposure of someone asking, well, why did you place so much money into something that turned out to be a fraud? They'd rather bury it under the carpet. And it's interesting in this case that one of the lead witnesses for the prosecution was actually a fund that put a bunch of money in Theranos and then took detailed notes of their meetings and did the due diligence and turned up the fact that a lot of what Theranos was saying was not backed up by reality. They weren't negotiating a great contract with the FDA or they weren't about to launch this new blood testing machine for Ebola. All of the things that they said were found out to be untrue. And this fund, to its credit, didn't have foe. They didn't have fear of exposure. They were willing to honestly look themselves in the eye and say, we made a mistake and we'd like to know why. And I think that is at the heart of this case, that all of these wealthy people you heard about putting money into Theranos, they didn't complain. They were quiet because they had foe. They had fear of exposure. Let me triangulate it before we break up here. 
so you can pop your startup for billions of dollars through the fear of missing out mentality. Now with Theranos hitting the skids, you might have a fear of finding out that what you popped wasn't worth that much. But you don't need to worry that much because of foe, because the person who's bought you has got fear of exposure. And you have a kind of happy equilibrium between that as well. Fascinating conversation. We're going to be back to continue this trial, just like the trial is going to be continued in the courts. More in a moment. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble. So, Will, you were grilling me in the first half about the implications of Theranos and what it says about the investors and the due diligence that they did and what it says about the legal system in the States. But tell me, as an economist, how do you think about the bets that are being placed into new technologies like Theranos that are going to be inevitably speculative? How would you guard against future Theranoses? Theranai, I don't know what the Greek uh, plural of that would be, but how would you how would you address the fact that tech is inherently risky and a lot of bets fail? The thing that gets to me here is we think about our original title for this podcast and the strapline for the whole scenario: "Fake it until you make it." It's the word "until." It's the fact that today's tech companies are staying private for longer, a lot longer. And I'm wondering, is there a type of solution that exists which could potentially call time on the bet to make sure that we're going to see a return on this investment as opposed to staying private where you can keep on faking it? I mean, I'm thinking about the children's story of the boy who cried wolf here. Do you have a kind of a view about just this tendency to stay private for longer and what that means with regards to future Theranoses? Well, certainly the SEC is starting to ask for more real disclosure on these unicorns. They're saying companies that have a certain size, even though they were able to file amended or limited S1 registration statements, they're now flipping that on its head and saying there shouldn't be as much hiding as private companies. And maybe when they get to a certain size, they should be forced to have the same sort of disclosures that public companies do. Now, If you are someone who has the resources, there are lots of ways to find out bits and pieces about private companies in the same way as you can do that on public companies. But it takes a lot of work, and you don't have the stocks as an investment vehicle to express your value of the time that you put into them in the same way. So if I spend a lot of time and effort researching a public company, I can then potentially choose to invest or not, or short the stock if I think I've found something untoward. I don't have the same way to express the value of putting that investment into due diligence in private companies. Now, that's almost like regulating for good behavior. I see the incentive structure there, encouraging more transparency earlier, preventing you faking it until you make it for longer. But it can go the other way. How about regulating for bad behavior? We've heard presidents in the past say we're going to rein in on fraud. And I'd like to ask about how would you advise against reining in on fraud? What can you do for the bad behavior aspect? And before we get to that, let's just pull up that favorite crime stats analogy I have, which is when crime stats go up, three things can happen. One, crime is on an increase, and that's bad. Two, we're getting better at catching criminals. That's good. Or three, we change the definition of crime. Now, as a policy wonk, how would you go about reining in fraud when the best fraudsters are the ones you can't see? 
we could come at that question from many different angles. One angle is simply the way in which disclosure has been constrained or denuded over the past years. By that, I mean you have large companies that can report a single business segment that comprises $200 billion of revenue and offer no material details into the composition of that segment. You have some of the largest companies in the market that report balance sheets with everything consolidated into eight lines. <laughs> so they're giving you the absolute bare minimum. Three cheers for granularity. <laughs> and absolutely, companies realize that secrecy doesn't hurt them. It hurts their competitors. It may harm investors, but investors may not be bothered by it as long as you're delivering the results. And better to disclose the least possible than to disclose the most possible. So certainly a first step would be requiring greater disclosure. And I think the lesson in a Theranos, and one we all forget in rising markets, is to be mindful of the downside risks. So what you had here and why the story attracted so much attention compared to how many other failed entrepreneurs and billion-dollar startups didn't make it through the Rubicon was that you had a very high-profile, self-promotional, attractive female CEO, and she hoodwinked a lot of what were supposed to be the smartest VCs that pride themselves on their rigorous due diligence. And obviously, they weren't as selective and rigorous as they thought they should be. So I think it's incumbent to sort of push it back to the buyer beware, but let's face it, in a rising market, in a world where it's awash with money and everybody's searching for a home for that investment, it's something where FOMO takes over and common sense goes out the window. I am inclined to agree with you, but we're podding and we need balance here. I want to stress test this. You seem to be calling for more compliance earlier in the startup's life cycle. Now, could there be pushback there where I'm in a startup, I've got 30 people in a warehouse, we're going to make the world a better place because that's what startups do, they make the world a better place. They all do, by the way. And then you say to me, you've got all this compliance to do, and I'm like, I've barely hired a business development team and now I have to hire compliance officers. That's going to stifle my entrepreneurship. Is there a risk that it could like, you know, pierce bubbles before they can even get bubbling? Okay, so let's draw a continuum here. Because a startup with 30 people in a warehouse without business development or without a legal team or with outsourcing everything to their VCs, which I've already discussed as oftentimes a pimp prostitute type business relationship where the, <laughs> the VC would like to provide a lot of those services for the new company such that the new company is highly dependent on them and they can take a greater stake. I got a lawyer who can solve that problem for you. He's not cheap, but I got that lawyer. <laughs> I'm sure he, you do. But those sort of companies are not looking to raise billions of dollars. And I think, again, the Rubicon that gets crossed here is not that a bunch of incredibly wealthy older men were hoodwinked by the charm of Elizabeth Holmes. It's more that when you look at VC funds, some of which are invested in by the pension funds that you and I rely on for future income, that those funds should be doing more due diligence. And when you reach a certain level of funding or a certain imputed valuation, 
whether you want to call that threshold half a billion or a billion or more, then there should be some compliance requirement. There should be some reporting. There should be some material auditing of these sorts of companies. And not just existing results, which may be zero revenue, but a lot of costs, but stress testing their business plans. And I think where we get into trouble and where you see bubbles forming is where that stress test never takes place. Right. Because you take it on faith or back to FOFO, the investor is afraid of laying bare their own ignorance by saying, we really don't understand what this clever young guy is doing, but it sounds very impressive. And that's what I wanted to take it right there. I'm going to ask you to get dusty fingers and flick through your old record collection here because we've done a lot of podcasts and a lot of them come into a second life when you discuss Theranos. So the most fascinating claim I saw in the research I did for this podcast was a lot of investors were resting their claims on that of the previous round. To your point, not doing due diligence, but believing on the previous round to be true, to believe in that trajectory, those themes and dreams, those sycophants and stenographers. You can see these podcasts coming back to life. Could you just go through your old record collection and pull out some of the anecdotes we've discussed in the past and how it applies to trusting the previous round as opposed to doing research in your round? Well, look, I think there is a herd mentality in the markets, and that is certainly true among a very concentrated Silicon Valley VC community. And this has been discussed at length. They accept the way in which many of them will only invest in deals if all of their peers invest in deals, or many of them will view the investment of one or another as a stamp of approval to say, well, since so-and-so invested, we should go in as well because they must have done their due diligence. That means we don't have to. In a way, it's a form of burden sharing, which can be quite effective. And it could be a form of collectivism, but it also begs the question, what value are they really adding for all the fat fees that they take on top of the investments that they make? If I turn that into a different direction here, in the case for Elizabeth Holmes almost... She was trying to do a good thing. I mean, obviously, it got very messy and it's all ended up in a terrible mess and she's staring at 20 years in the clink. But she was trying to do a good thing in response to a really bad thing, which is the system of U.S. healthcare. Is there a case for the defense here in that what she was trying to do was overcome the hurdles of the incumbent, the regulation that favored the incumbent over the new entrant, and that leads you to faking it to make it? Do you see startups in that situation where I get it? You cooked your books. You're a bad boy. The judge is going to deal with that. But what you were trying to do is solve a problem which has been protected by the incumbent, the old guard. And that involves playing a little dirty from time to being. To the extent Elizabeth Holmes was trying to solve the problems of U.S. healthcare, pretending to have technical competence is not going to cut it in a field like medtech. And a lot of the problems of U.S. healthcare are endemic or structural to the way in which it's set up as a commercial system, to the role of the insurance companies, to the, the salaries that doctors in America get compared to everywhere else in the world, to the malpractice industry when anything goes wrong, which says we ought to order loads of tests that we probably don't need, but we're covering our ass in terms of liability in case we don't order them and, and we fail to pick something up. So 
I don't see that Elizabeth Holmes was necessarily in an altruistic way trying to address all that. Frankly, the astonishing thing was that there was no there there in terms of the technology that she promised and how it would work. And that no one seemed to recognize that her methods, as promised, was simply breaking the laws of physics. You very eloquently thrown the case from the defence, not just out the window, but across the River Thames, as far as I can see it. Um, let's bring this one to a wrap by stressing that the Theranos story hasn't finished, and in many ways, it's only just begun. The Bubble Trouble story hasn't finished. In many ways, it too has only just begun. Think about this. Firstly, her co-founder goes on the stand next month. Secondly, she's got to appeal. We know that's going to be time-consuming. And thirdly, you've got TV rights being sold to dramatise the whole episode. But it gets worse if you think about WeWork, Richard. The founder of WeWork, he's back in the ring. He's doing his landlord thing right now. And we think about Enron, the godfather of bubble troubles. Jeff Skilling, guess what he's doing? He's back in spec. So this is definitely not the end of the story. It's been a beginning, but I want to thank Richard Kramer, a.k.a. The King K. It's been a fantastic episode of Bubble Trouble. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back next week. Guess what? With more bubbles and even more troubles. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.